Well, it's really good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Joe, and uh, I'm here with my wife, also called Joe. So that's nice and easy for you, isn't it? Uh, and our daughters, Pippa and Bonnie, are on Sunday school. So really great to be here. And um, obviously, being John and Norma's grandson, I've been to Hollywell since I was yay high. Always had a lovely, warm welcome. So thank you for that as well. And uh, yeah, just a, a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, we bring warm greetings from Glencroft Church, kind of in the south of Leicester. Uh, but in, in about a month's time, if I was to come here, I'd be bringing you warm greetings from uh, Glen Hills Church, because we're planting uh, on the 2nd of October, and Joe and I are going to go and, uh, and help to, to head that up. So we're very excited. Do be praying for the, the planting of Glen Hills. It's, it's only five minutes down the road from our current church, but it's just in an area in a neighbourhood that we don't feel that we're reaching at the moment. So we're really um, excited, a little bit nervous, uh, about starting a church plant over in Glen Hills. It's really wonderful to be with you this morning. Please do have open in front of you that passage from uh, Mark chapter 14. Um, I've entitled this sermon this morning, She Has Done a Beautiful Thing, thinking about this amazing gesture uh, from Mary, from this lady who poured that alabaster jar uh, of perfume on Jesus' head. Just as a bit of a roadmap for where we're going this morning, uh, we're going to be thinking about a quiet murder in verses 1 and 2. Uh, and then we're moving on to think about a silent servant in verse 3. And then in verses 4 to 9, uh, a loud betrayal. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's, um, let's look at these first two verses then, uh, a quiet murder. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever seen anybody uh, make a very last-minute change of plan. I was driving out of Leicester uh, late at night a little while ago and there were three, leads ahead, three lanes ahead of me and I was in the middle one and a chap in a car on, in the right lane made a very last minute decision to, to exit on the slip road. He cut right across me, missed my bumper about that, about that much and he kind of swept past me. I slammed the brakes on and clearly he had realised he needed to get off very quickly and it was a very last minute decision. I wonder whether you've ever made a very last minute decision yourself or a a last minute, quick on the motorway, exit as quick as you can. Well, in these early verses, verse 1 and 2, we find the Pharisees making that kind of exit at a last minute change of plan. If you were to flip back in Mark to chapter 3, you would find that the, these religious men, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they've been plotting right back from Mark 3, plotting to kill Jesus. It says in Mark chapter 3 that, that they began to make plans. Plans to, to get, a, get, get gone, get Jesus away from them. They, they actually wanted to, to murder him. And the plan was to kind of, to do it soon. He'd been working his way towards Jerusalem, coming through the villages, signs and wonders and miracles and an amazing teaching. But the teaching of Jesus Christ turned the world of the Pharisees upside down. See, these were men who were all about keeping the law. But here was a man who people were saying is the son of God and, and, and he is saying incredible things about, about grace and forgiveness and, and knowing God personally. But, but what about the law? What about our Jewish laws that we're keeping? He had turned the world of the Pharisees upside down. And if you look at John 11, verse 57, you will find that, that their plan was, as he got closer and closer to Jerusalem, the plan was to do away with him when he got to the city. Maybe the Pharisees thought, well, well Jerusalem, that's our turf. Yeah, when he gets to the city, then we've got him. We've, we've, we've surrounded him. We'll trap him then. And they were planning to get Jesus. But there's a spanner in the works 
And you'll know this if you think back to Easter. What happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? Does he walk through the gates and they grab him and put a sack over his head? Well, no, Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. And the people go wild with celebration. Hosanna to the son of David. And they're grabbing palm branches and waving them and singing. And there is such joy in Jerusalem that the Pharisees look at each other and they say, we can't kill him now, can we? Look how much the people love him. And here we are in, uh, in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Let's read those first two verses. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Why did they want to do it secretly? Because the people love him. They love him. People are finding forgiveness and peace at last. Not through keeping rigorous Jewish laws, but through the words of Christ. And the Pharisees say to themselves, look, in verse 2 they say, we can't arrest, uh, we can't, uh, but not during the festival. We can't do it now during this festival because the people may riot. The people may riot, they say. Now these are holy men. These are men who kind of ostensibly are law keepers. They should know God's law, shouldn't they? And I think as law keepers, as, as law abiding men, what they should be saying to each other isn't what they say in verse 2. They should read, brothers, we must not do such a thing for God forbids it. You know, all they, they've got so many laws, but just look at the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. And isn't, isn't it remarkable that these Pharisees, despite being rigorous law keepers, when they feel threatened, they do away with those Ten Commandments, the laws that they're supposed to teach. And all of a sudden, thou shalt not kill becomes, let's do away with him secretly, a quiet murder. Well, wait, after the Passover, you know, when all the, when the patriotism has calmed down, all the religious fervor is, when people have simmered down and gone back home, then we'll get him. Then we'll grab him. And we're planning a quiet murder. There's a spanner in the works. They were not expecting the triumphal entry at all. Well, this is their plan. And as the Pharisees make their quiet murder plans, we can take uh, two applications from them. In fact, just to tell you now, I've got eight applications this morning, so you can see the look of shock and panic in some eyes at the back. It's okay, we'll try and whip through them quickly. But I, I really feel this passage has so much to, to teach us. <laughs> I've learned so much uh, from studying it. Two applications then as we look at the Pharisees' evil plan. And the first one uh, is this. A religion that is focused on personal gain will lead to some very dark places. A religion that is focused on personal gain will lead us to very dark places. Now these men were not brought up to be murderers, I don't think. They were well-respected men of the community, pillars of the community. They weren't the kind of guys who in, in school or high school you'd say, yeah, they'll end up in prison. And yet here they are, the second they're threatened, the second their, their way of life is under threat, here they are planning the murder of an innocent man. Isn't that remarkable? Doesn't that tell you something about the human nature, what, what you're like, what I'm like? The second we're threatened, they don't even blink. They're plotting murder. Well, that's the first thing, the first application. A religion focused on our gain, personal gain, will lead us to some very dark places. The second application is this. And I take real strength from this. Even evil plans serve God's big purpose. Even evil plans serve God's big purpose. I'm always reminded of um, the words of Joseph when 
he eventually meets his brothers who chucked him in a well and sold him to slavery. What does he say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. That was your plan. But God had a bigger plan. God meant it for good. You know, as we read this, the the Pharisees had these evil plans, but they weren't taking into account God's big plan, were they? Because we read at the end of our passage today, the Pharisees had this plan to, you know, after the festival, we'll grab Jesus and we'll murder him secretly then. But Judas comes to them before that and says, look, I've got a, I've got a better plan. Why don't I go and kiss him in the Garden of Gethsemane? I'll show you who he is. And actually their, their original plan goes out the window anyway. God's got a bigger plan. God wasn't going to let them quiet down and kill Jesus in secret. God had a cross-shaped plan. It was going to happen. That was why Jesus came. Well, those are the first two applications. Let's, uh, let's dive into verse 3. And now we're going to think about this amazing gesture of a silent servant. You see, the Pharisees watched Jesus come into Jerusalem on the donkey, and they were watching a threat arrive. To them, Jesus is, is, is a threat in every way. But Mary, and John's Gospel tells us that this was Mary, Mark doesn't name her, but this is Mary, the, the sister of uh, Martha and Lazarus. Mary doesn't see a threat come into Jerusalem. She watches a king arrive. She would have been one of those people with the, with the palm branches. Hosanna to the son of David. Wow, he's here at last. She doesn't watch a threat. She's watching a king arrive. And just as a note, this is not the same story. You know the story where the sinful woman comes in and pours the oil on Jesus' feet and she's feeling guilty and she loves him because she's been forgiven. This is a different story. This is... Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointing him on his head. It's confusing, two different, quite similar stories. But this is Mary. So here they are, dinner party. I mean, have you ever had a nickname? I don't think you can get a much worse nickname than Simon the leper, can you? But uh, here they are at Simon. I mean, even after being cured of leprosy, they still call him Simon the leper. But they, there we are at Simon's house. I want to say that though, I think there are three remarkable aspects to what Mary did. Three really remarkable things about what she did and the way she did it. She did it. And the first one is this. Mary fetched, it looks like my PowerPoint has gone a bit weird, but bear with me. Mary fetched very expensive perfume. Very expensive perfume. See, it was called nard or spike nard, refined and refined and refined. This was the kind of perfume that would have been passed down from generation to generation. Maybe it was her grandmother's, and then her mother's, and then hers. And in those days, you know, we, we invest in property and all kinds of things, or fancy cars, don't we, or you know, fancy trainers. But, but in those days, they would invest in something like a, an alabaster jar. See, alabaster, nothing's going to leak. It's, it's really good for keeping the scent in. There's a stopper on top. And it would have been passed down. This is almost like a lump sum. And it's great because it's portable. If I want to go and sell it, I can. And she had it at home and she knew that it was at home. Maybe she hid it in a secret place behind the sofa. Mary had this spike nard and she knew what it was worth. It was very expensive. And we see later that everybody else in the room knows what it was worth. This was the kind of perfume that would have been passed down. It was uh, an investment of hers. It was something to keep for a special time. And yet Mary chooses the most expensive thing that she owns. And she thinks nothing. You know, it was, it was traditional in those days when they came for a meal. A guest of honour might be dabbed on the head with a bit of perfume, right? What does Mary do? The top's off. 
and she pours the whole thing on Jesus' head. You can almost hear the gasps, can't you? People are gripping, gripping each other. What's she doing? What a waste. But Mary doesn't care. And here's our third application. You see, it's not, it's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you something. For Mary, this is a sacrifice. This is expensive stuff. But it's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. Mary poured it all on Jesus' head. This is the second thing that's remarkable. It's expensive. She put it all on his head. Didn't just dab it with oil like the custom. She put it all on Jesus' head. The whole thing. And the application I take from this, you know, three days later, three days later, King Jesus would pour out his life for Mary. You know, his best friends didn't even realize this yet. They were still had blinkers on. They were still arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus, who's going to sit next to you in paradise? But Mary's insightful. Mary, Mary listens to Jesus talk about his death. The, the disciples listen to him and, and they die, Jesus. They, they debate it and they deny it. But Mary believes it. She's anointing a king before his death. She knows what's going to happen. Three days later, he would pour out his life for her. I'd say this, our fourth application, extravagant love demands extravagant worship. We have been so loved, haven't we? Wasn't it great that children do? We've been so loved. Think about the songs we've sung today. The blood of Christ washes me from all my sins. I've been so loved. And extravagant love deserves, demands extravagant worship. The third remarkable thing I think about what Mary did is this. Mary does this amazing gesture, but she doesn't speak. Just look at the passage. See if you can find her speaking. There's a non-speaking part for her. She doesn't say a word. She pours the oil on. There's no grand explanation. She doesn't say, stand back, guys. I'm about to do something incredible. Make sure everybody can see. Guys at the back, come on. I'm about to... No, she just she walks in. She takes the stopper out, and she just pours it out. She says nothing. No grand announcement. She doesn't, doesn't attempt to draw the, um, the attention towards herself. It's all on Jesus. She doesn't speak. In fact, I'd argue that Mary's actions speak for her. It's an incredible thing that she does. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this. He says, if we could all do more and talk less, it might be a blessing to ourselves at least. Perhaps to others, he says, let us labor in our service for the Lord to be more and more hidden. As much as the proud desire to catch the eye of man, let us endeavor to avoid it. Let us try and be more and more hidden in our work for God. Do it in secret. Mary did not speak. I think that's absolutely incredible. She didn't speak. And and our fifth application would be this, you know, true worship, really worshiping God. It doesn't need announcing. You can do it in secret. It's just between you and him. And that's a lovely thing. If you're a Christian here today, true worship. You don't have to, you know, we live in a culture, don't we, where, you know, you whip your phone out to take a picture of a nice meal. But we like to, you know, here's me giving to the homeless. Let me just get a quick, hold on, get a quick picture of it. And and here's me giving to charity. And and we love to announce our virtue, don't we? I'm so moral. But Mary's actions speak for her. True worship does not need announcing. Why don't we try more and more to keep our good deeds between us and God. He knows. He sees you doing the church lose in secret when no one else is here. He knows. 
He sees all the, the time you spent with that neighbor who's struggling. Nobody else knows, but he sees. And God is pleased when we do hidden things as worship to him. Well, uh, let's move on to verses 4 and 9 then. And uh, we've had a, a quiet murder plotting. We've had a silent servant. But this is loud now, a loud betrayal in verses 4 to 9. Here's Judas. Looks like Judas is taking over, doesn't it? Well, he is. A loud betrayal. You know, that, that perfume goes on Jesus' head. And, and almost as the last drop comes out, there's a hubbub and there's, there's voices going and it builds and it builds. And they're not happy voices, are they? Let's have a look at what they say in verses 4 to 9. Some of those present were saying indignantly. You know that, that word indignant? That's kind of clench your fists, isn't it? Indignantly to one another. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. And the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. You know, this sour thought about how much it was worth and what could have been done with it, this sour thought wasn't just, the, wasn't just chatter amongst the men present. This sour thought started somewhere. There was, a, there was a spark, a nasty spark that lit the flame. And if you flick over to John chapter 12, you'll find that, that John expands a bit more and he tells us that it was Judas who lit the flame. It was Judas who knew exactly how much the spike nard was worth. I, I wonder whether, the Bible doesn't tell us, I wonder, you know, they come to Bethany a lot, Jesus and his friends and his disciples. I wonder whether Judas has been eyeing up this perfume for a while. See, John tells us that Judas was the, the money man amongst the, the disciples and he had his hand in the money pot. Maybe Judas had been around for lunch at, at Mary and Martha's and seen that perfume and, and he'd just gone, I think that's worth about a, maybe a year's wages. It's remarkable, you know, it's remarkable that they just, they just know how much it's worth. I wonder whether Judas, know, whether he's known for a while. Maybe he knows where she hides it in the house. And maybe he thinks to himself, well, you know, I've got my hand in the money pot and pretty soon I'm sure Mary will, she'll sell that, she'll give it to Jesus. She gives everything to Jesus. Pretty soon that money is coming to Judas's back pocket fund. Maybe he's been looking forward to it. And maybe that's why in John 12 he is so angry at this perceived waste I actually like to imagine that when Judas says it to the guys in the room, I like to imagine that he says, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages. And then he realises what he said and he adds the next bit about the poor. Oh, oh yeah, and, and the money given to the poor. Maybe he tries to dress it up to make himself look a bit holier. It's like, yeah, right, Jesus. That's what you were really thinking, isn't it? Yeah. John 12, verse 6 gives us this insight. John 12, verse 6 says, this he said, Judas said this, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He used to take what was put in it. You know, I think Judas's real concern here is that that spike now being poured on Jesus meant that he was out of pocket. Isn't that sad? All he could think about was his back pocket fund. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. N not money. There's plenty of rich Christians around. Maybe you're a rich Christian. Don't feel guilty about that. Just enjoy it and give it to God as much as you can. It's not money. Uh, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Judas loved money. You know, when you love money, you know what things are worth. I've got some friends who love money. They love it. They know how much my car, I don't know how much my car's worth. They know. 
they know how much my house is worth. They they question holidays we go on. They they love money. They're interested. You know, if you're interested, if you're obsessed with money, you will know all about it. You'll, you'll always be watching and judging people. Oh, they spent that on that. Christian, I mean, I remember I, we bought a piano a few years ago, and they said, "Well, doesn't the church need a new piano first before you get yours?" I felt so guilty. You know, if you love money, you'll be interested in money. You'll be obsessed by it. You will know what's worth what. I think that although Judas hadn't kissed Jesus in the garden yet, it's clear from Mark 14 that he was already betraying Jesus in his heart, just on the sly. The betrayer was already there. He didn't want expensive stuff poured on the Saviour. He was already betraying Jesus in his heart. You know, often, often those who are very good at pointing out faults in other people are extraordinarily blind to their own, their own shortcomings. Have you found that? So good at spotting faults. And sometimes we're like that, so blind to our own shortcomings. And that was Judas. If you flick to John 17, verse 12, it's really interesting to note that the translation is very interesting. When Judas says the word waste, the translation is the word perdition. It's a, it's a waste. But John goes on. And actually, he refers to Judas later as the son of perdition. In other words, Judas moans about Mary wasting this perfume. But John says later, you know, Judas was the son of perdition. He later wasted his life. One thing to waste perfume, isn't it? Judas wasted his life. He was the son of waste, the son of perdition. You know, I, I really have been struck by this. I think as a, as a sixth application, when you feel... Oh, there we go. When you feel indignant, examine yourself. You know, when you feel like you're really, I can't believe they did that to me. When you feel indignant about something, examine yourself. Are your motives good? Or is there something else going on? I'd like to tell you now about um, what I like to call the curse of Kirsty McIntyre. I'm hoping that Kirsty McIntyre is not here with us this morning. That could be awkward. When I was at school in my English class, I was about 16, I sat next to a girl called Laura. And Laura had an arch enemy. And her arch enemy was Kirsty McIntyre. And it was really awkward because I sat next to Laura. I was getting to know her. And across the classroom in our English class sat the dreaded Kirsty McIntyre. Now, I'd never met Kirsty, didn't know her from Adam. But I sat next to Laura, and every day Laura would stare daggers. And I think, well, this Kirsty McIntyre must be really awful. And I tried to ask Laura, what is, what is it about her that you hate so much? Well, you know, we fell out when we were at preschool and, oh, you know. And this Laura, she hated Kirsty McIntyre. And sitting next to her, month after month in English class, I never spoke to Kirsty because I dreaded her. I thought she was this, she must be awful. I, avoid, I didn't share my pencil sharpener with her, never went near her at lunch. In my eyes, Kirsty McIntyre was, you know, would stay well away. Do you know? A few months later, they had a reshuffle in the English class. And they changed seats. And guess who I was sat next to at the back of the class? Me and Kirsty McIntyre. <gasps> Do you know, she was delightful. She was the loveliest person. And I sat there, red-faced. I felt so ashamed. Because my opinion of Kirsty had been so tainted by Laura, who hated her. You know, sometimes people with really strong opinions can, can shape our own views, can't they? Sometimes somebody who's really got a bugbear in church, it can start to sour us as well if we listen too much. And this was Judas. You know, I, I think this, this muttering in the room at Simon the leper's house, this muttering came from somewhere. John tells us it was Judas. But the sad thing about it was, it wasn't just Judas. Do you notice John, uh, Mark says in Mark 14, 
many voices. There were many voices that joined in. Several of the guys thought it was a waste. It wasn't just Judas muttering away on his own in the corner. No. Several voices. And they rebuke her harshly. Verse 5. They rebuke her harshly. What do you think you're doing? You know, Judas's strong opinion influences others. Are you a person with strong opinions? Be careful. You could really sway people the wrong way. They rebuke her harshly, verse 5. I think it's very easy to criticise people that love Jesus more than we do. Have you ever done that? Oh, they're just a fanatic. They're just a zealot. You know, they're just going over the top for Jesus. Really easy to criticise people who clearly love the Lord more than me. Application 7, then. We're nearly done. (laughs) When we listen to the complaints of others, so when, when you hear somebody moaning about something, maybe in church life, we must weigh their words carefully. What are their motives? Why are they so upset about this? Is this an opinion that I should share? Or is this something that I need to help them with? You know, if someone's got strong opinions, really think about why they feel so angry. Why do they feel like this? Maybe Judas' friends, the other disciples, should have said, Judas, just think about what she's doing, Judas. But instead, they were influenced, they joined in. We've got to ask ourselves, is this, is this an opinion that I should share myself? So often, I find that things that I'm miffed about aren't really my opinions. I've just joined in with somebody else, and that's wrong. Ask yourself, am I being influenced by somebody with unclear motives? Well, we're going to go verse by verse now. Let's have a look at verse 6. And here we are again, our lovely Lord Jesus. Here he is again, defending a defenceless woman. How often does he do that in Scripture? Here he is, leave her alone, said Jesus. He stands up. Why are you bothering her? Get this, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for good. Two words for good. Uh, She's done uh, a beautiful thing to me, he says. The first word is agathos. And agathos describes something that is like morally good. But Jesus doesn't use that word. In the Greek, he uses the word kalos. And kalos means something beautiful. She's done a beautiful, a good thing to me. Maybe your version says good. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And you notice he cuts, he knows who, who the, the muttering started with. He cuts right to Judas. Maybe he says it to the whole room, but this would have hurt Judas. The poor, verse 7, the, the poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you like. In other words, Judas, get some of that money you've been stealing and give it to the poor if you're so bothered about it. He calls out the hypocrisy of Judas. There will always be people who need your help. Now, if you're somebody who is obsessed with money, why don't you just stop and think, well, I've got a fair bit of cash. Maybe I know people who need it more than me. Jesus calls out the the hypocrisy of Judas. Then verse 8, he says, look, and, and this is great, she did what she could. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. In other words, Mary, out of all of you, Mary understands I'm going to die. And I find this first bit so encouraging, don't you? She did what she could. Do you ever feel like, I don't know, like you you can't offer God enough? I just haven't got much to offer to Jesus. Well, it doesn't matter how much you've got or not. She did what she could. He was so pleased with Mary. She just did what she could. Jesus doesn't expect more of us than what we're able to give. He doesn't expect any more than what you're able to give. 
And I think the beauty in what Mary did is that it was unique to her. Nobody else in that room could have done that. That was her gift from her house. I wonder whether the meal started and she thought, this is it. Maybe she'd been planning it for a while. Maybe she ran home. She was in Bethany. She ran home, grabbed it and ran back. I just love that idea. But the beauty in what Mary did was that it was unique to her. And there will be things in your life that you can do for Jesus that are completely unique to you. Things that the guy sat next to you couldn't do because he's not you. There will be things that you can do for God that are completely unique to you. This was her way of outwardly showing what she inwardly believed. What does Jesus say? He's got these friends around him. And all the way to Jerusalem, they've been bickering and arguing. Who's the greatest disciple? Who's going to have the most powerful position in heaven? They want this lasting legacy for themselves. But do you know what, in verse 9, who gets the lasting legacy? It's Mary. Verse 9, truly I tell you, says Jesus, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, Hollywell. 2022, and we're still talking about it now. She wasn't after power, wasn't a power grab, wasn't a prestige thing for her. She didn't speak. She did what she could. Here's our final application, application number eight. Jesus knows your motives. He knows them. Your, your heart of hearts. He knows your motives. And that's all that matters. I just want to ask myself and ask you now, what beautiful thing will you do for Jesus this week? What, what unique thing that only you could do? How will you worship Christ this week? Well, why don't we pray? Then we're going to sing. And then we'll finish our service then. Let's, um, let's speak to God now.